Welcome to our podcast. I'm Josh. I'm Daniel. And we're going to talk about movies today. We're going to talk about movies that we've seen in the past week. Movies that we have seen long ago, one or both of us. And we're going to revisit a movie and see how well it holds up. Dan, how you holding up? It's the one or both of us line. <laughs> yeah. Clunky. I'm, I'm, I'm well. I'm doing well today. <laughs> Every week I love this. One or both of us. I, I'm doing well. I went to the gym this afternoon and that's mm-hmm. after a very long hiatus i have congratulations just, well done thank you thank you i've just been eating everything in sight lately and i've been going to the store with reckless abandon yeah buying one or two gallons of ice cream and wow. chips and cookies and sodas and snacks and i just can't do that every day sure can't eat that way every day and i've just been sore and tired and i think it's just from eating too much and taking no exercise. Yeah. Well, uh, you've made a positive move in the right direction. My life is full of positive moves. And How I are you? that. <laughs> Thank you. How are you? I'm all right. I, I lost 30 pounds last year uh, through well. moderation <laughs> and exercise. But, no, 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 listen, but. Screw you. I'm, just, I'm sticking to the topic. It's not what it sounds like. Okay. I gained back 40 and I still have the, um, so this year oh, has good. not been successful so i'm envious of your discipline even in the one trip to the gym you're a regular uh jude law and mr ripley oh well putting on weight to be an adonis that's i mean in the the bathroom mirror i am (laughs) take your word uh anyway i'm okay what'd you see dan well my big new release that i saw was midsummer and boy did i love this movie yeah i know that not everyone loves it not everyone loves it. Some people just don't like it on its own terms. Some people like it less than Hereditary or whatever. I'm one of the people who both like it in general and I like it more than Hereditary. Ari Aster's the director and I think that Ari has an intense understanding of grief and human pain and finds ways to articulate that visually and with the most bizarre storytelling Here's a horror movie that takes place entirely in the light. There are yes. no jump scares and there and it's mesmerizing and it's terrifying and you feel the weight of what the lead character is experiencing. It's huh. uh, starring Florence Pugh, who I don't know before. Do you know anything? I know her from Fighting with My Family, which I was stunned to see that okay. that's the same actress. All right. Well, I was unfamiliar with her um, before that. I didn't see Fighting with My Family. She gives a marvelous performance. Like, he really um, brings it out of his cast, like both Tony Collette's performance in Hereditary and now this one in Midsummer. Um, the different. Go ahead. I'm sorry, I just want to briefly interrupt and say we're usually pretty fast and loose with spoilers on the show, but this is a time that I'm going to ask you to go easy because i'm i'm gonna catch up on this one right i won't spoil it um beyond what's going on in the trailer and what we already see um i i I always skip over things like plot just assuming that everyone's seen the trailer but there is this uh young woman named danny and she experiences a trauma and she with her boyfriend with whom she is in a terrible relationship um, invites her to go with him to Sweden with one of his friends from graduate school who is taking them back to his childhood village because every 90 years they have a festival. And there are ominous signs and people who are prancing about 
gambling, might we say, um, through through these hills in traditional costumes and going through increasingly disturbing cultic rituals. And it's very funny, which I wasn't ready for because Hereditary wasn't funny at all. And um, there's so much humor in the script. The cast is wonderful. The guy who plays her boyfriend, Jack Rayner, he's another person I'm not familiar with. Um, but Cheedy from Good Place is right. one of the friends. And uh, Will Poulter, who you've just seen around, younger um, character actor that you'd pick out immediately, is one of the friends. And to me, it was all just this big metaphor of grief and how different people respond to it in unhelpful ways, whether it be being disrespectful of your experience or just not understanding your experience or trying to analyze your experience. And just none of it is helpful and it compounds and you are more and more crushed by it um, until there's finally a moment of catharsis. So anyway, I really enjoyed this movie. I, I'm so often bored in the movies and I go just because I feel I need to see something or this is the hot new thing. I need to sit through it to see this performance. This was a movie I was excited to see and I enjoyed it in the theater from beginning to end and I really loved it. Wow. That's great to hear. I am still being a little bit chicken on this one. I'm probably going to break down and see it in the theater. If not, I will definitely catch up with it on streaming or blue at my earliest convenience. Are you excited to hear about the uh, three-hour director's cut that's going to be on the Blu-ray? See, I would watch a three-hour director's cut <laughs> of this movie because I do want to see what I missed. It it um it, It's a movie that deserves a second watch, uh, like Us was to me, because there are, there's so much going on graphically. You've seen kind of the intricate paintings that are on the walls and the tapestries in this village where they go to. And you come to realize that there's meaning in it, that when, you know, you're passing by a certain tapestry and the camera runs and you see what the pictures are on it, you mm. um, something later is going to happen that you wouldn't have guessed by just looking at that tapestry, but it's a throwback to what you saw. And, right. and so it's just one of those things like, like with Jordan Peele, where there's a lot of care taken in what's in the background and realizing that the two lead characters are standing in a version of a portrait that you're going to see later. And that's not a big reveal or something for the plot. It's just, oh, there's this portrait later. And so what if we made her apartment look kind of like that portrait and have mm. them standing in it earlier? It, it It's just a, a real level of care in the production design yeah. that I that I appreciate. I felt like Hereditary invites a revisit, uh, but it was, and I really enjoyed Hereditary, but it was so heavy and intense and dour that I've kind of not been an eager to, to experience it again. Yeah. Hereditary was devastating and I couldn't quite make sense of its meaning. It went, it left the real world and went into myth. And this one does that to a degree as well, but the trauma that it's rooted in isn't part of the drama of the movie, which makes it a little easier mm. because in hereditary we're working up to the accident that causes the big meltdown mm -hmm. in midsummer that happens right off. And then she's dealing with it throughout. So yeah. to me, it, it, it was less devastating than hereditary. Well, the new release that I was fortunate enough to take in a screening of was Stuber. 
<laughs> so as I told you, I got a uh, an offer to go the, a night early for a free screening, and I just didn't go. And I think that was okay. You made an excellent choice. I remember the first ink, the first little glimpses of this movie, thinking, "Well, it looks really stupid, but that'll be fun." Batista and and Kumail. It looked like it would at least be, you know, dumb fun. It is not. It is bad. It is very stupid. I have in my notes, stunningly stupid and stale, starkly stagnant and strange. That's Stuber. <laughs> I think uh, it's, I, I feel like it wants to do something similar to what that Predator reboot that we talked about a few weeks ago was trying to do. Uh, and that's to kind of shoot for this aggressively vulgar 90s dude action movie. Only this is a cop buddy movie. Uh, but it similarly puts no spin on it and ends up just being vulgar and macho and gross with no point. And at the same time, it wants to be a hilarious comedy and is simply very unfunny. Just a failure at every level. So here's my question about it. The guy I know is named Stu and he drives an Uber. <laughs> yep. So I guess that's, that's where we get the title. But is that a joke in the film? Does he consider his ride the Stuber? No. It's so like it's like somebody wrote Stuber on a napkin and then they had to reverse engineer a movie out of it. So he is called Stuber. He doesn't like the nickname. It's what his coworker calls him, a coworker who chases him out the door at the end of a workday and demands to be driven to be Ubered somewhere, which doesn't make much sense. And then calls him Stuber and he says, my name's Stu. I don't like that. And then uh, later in the movie, it just comes back. But it's not it doesn't mean a whole lot. So Kumail is a, an Uber driver who is, is obsessed with his five-star rating. It's the only joke the movie has over and over again. He has snacks in his Uber, and he has lots of music on his iPod, and he wants to be the best, but things keep going wrong. And then things go very wrong when he picks up this cop who just had LASIK surgery and can't drive himself, but he's got to go stop the big drug bust, and he gets swept into the intrigue and, and whatever of this big stupid story there is a very famous actress in a very small part so you know she's going to end up being the surprise villain so i have a couple of questions please what was the cop planning to do when he arrived at the crime scene if he is visually impaired such that he can't drive he wasn't thinking ahead he's just all impulse he's been told that he's going to get kicked off this case and they're going to give it to the feds so he's got to act today uh, it's his only chance this guy killed his partner, and this is going to be his last chance to take him down. And then, of course, wouldn't you know, he just had the LASIK. And then also, it's this is all happening on the day of his daughter's art installation in L.A., and they have to he's got to work that in there, and he's got to show up to be a good dad. It just is all of the worst tropes of these kind of movies and done in the laziest possible way. And it sounds like Uber is almost a sponsor of the movie, if there isn't any sort of a critical eye toward what it is to be a rideshare driver. Yeah, there's nothing that says like sponsored by Uber, but they make a lot of very specific references to the actual service. They show the app and it's the real app. So they're, at least they have permission. Right. They're not um, in danger of Uber being mad at them. They're clearly using the name. It's in the title. Yeah. Because to me, in a movie about an Uber driver, I mean, even though this is obviously a dumb comedy that takes place on an alternate plane of reality, um, that's not all roses are fun. And Uber drivers are not just um, preoccupied with five-star ratings. 
there's there's a reason why you become an Uber driver and it's not usually a happy reason. Yeah. This is coming from a person who is myself who has been an Uber driver yeah. at a time of life crisis and it seems fun for the first few rides and then you realize how much gas you waste and how much it costs to do this and you're making less and less. Right. You are responsible for all of the capital and they get all of the profit and there are predatory lending practices with the car. Right. <laughs> anyway, I've, when they're yeah. when it's when we're talking about like an Uber movie Right. I, I think just the having that be the central conceit only is like, oh, you know, Ubers, you know, those things you get in sometimes. Imagine right. if one was in a cop case. Yeah. And they they gloss over all that. It, it's strictly a personality quirk of Kumail's character. It's, you know, he's not doing it for the money. Even he he's somebody who has a full time job. And in fact, one of the sub subplots of the movie is that he's just gone in half and half with a girl he's in love with to help uh, open her cycle gym business so he, he it's strictly just because he's a quirky guy and he's got this electric car and he likes to drive and he wants this five-star ratings as like this little you know personal accomplishment so they don't get into any of that yeah i just think that there's a lot of places you could go with a comedy like this and this doesn't seem like a good use of any of that storytelling why not come up with a better reason that the cop is in the back seat, a LASIK surgery right. where then he doesn't think it through just like the screenwriters. Right. Yeah. You should have thought something through that would be a viable reason why he needed an Uber at a desperate moment that would endanger a civilian. It, none of that makes sense. No. And, but this is a movie where he ends up giving uh Stuber a gun, which he uses to shoot someone in his Uber car and, you know, everything is is over the top and dumb. And it's also this thing of the alpha man and the sensitive man. And this is a cop. It's supposed to be just they both have their quirks. How are they going to get along? But the Batista character, the, the cop, is so horrible and misogynistic. And he tortures Latino people in a very uncomfortable scene. Like, it's unbelievably just tone deaf in, in its attempt to be over the top. It just ends up being uh, very offensive. Well, that sounds awful. Yeah. So skip it. Will do. Everybody. Right out of you. All right. Uh, I have one more title to talk about. Did you see anything else in the past week? Well, I, 10 years later, streamed District 9. Oh, yeah. That's not a, it's not a new release. And I won't say too much about it because its time has come and gone. But I had no real idea of what this movie was, except that it was something about aliens and their refugees and there's kind of allegorical elements. And I knew that it was kind of a breakthrough in what I think is the first year of the expanded Best Picture lineup and was a Best Picture nominee. And I really enjoyed the film. I thought it it balanced its mockumentary and action styles pretty well. I was interested in the world that it created. I liked the cute little alien child. And I liked the lead guy. What's his name? Uh, the actor, Charlotte Copeland. Yeah. 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 I liked him. It was good. Yeah. That was one of my favorites uh, that year. And, and I haven't revisited it in a while, but uh, really good, really fun, solid debut from a director who sadly has not uh, quite reached that, uh, that level again since. But he reached it once and I haven't even done that, you know? That's true. That's true. All right. What else did you see? Uh, I streamed a very interesting folk horror movie on Amazon Prime called Hagazusa. 
that sounds like my jam. Yeah, I think you might like this movie. It's a German-Austrian film, a debut film from a guy whose name I don't remember and probably can't pronounce. Luke something, first name's Luke. And it is a uh, witch story. It's like a kind of a witch folktale, but done in a very stark, understated kind of a style. Uh, it's brutal. It's entrancing. Uh, it's centers around women, mostly. And some extremely unspeakable things happen in this movie, but they make a weird kind of internal sense. And they're part of, of just this overall experience. It manages to somehow be very human and sad and sweet. So we, we meet uh, in the opening sequence, an old woman who lives in a shack on top of a snowy mountain in, in Germany. And she has this little child and we don't know the relationship between them. The little girl calls her mama, but a tragic thing happens in the early moments of the film and then we kind of flash forward to this little girl as a uh, an adult woman. And it's her relationship with the town. Uh, it seems like they know who she is openly and, and the way that they treat her. And it's it's a very, it just has to be seen if, if you can handle this kind of a thing. I think I saw it compared to The Witch, and I guess in style it is. Uh, in terms of the content, it, I think it makes The Witch look kind of breezy. But um if, you, if it's the kind of thing that sounds like it might be your jam, I think it, it, it very well could be. What led you to it? I think I heard it on another podcast. Somebody was recommending movies to stream that were not um, kind of hidden gems and, and things that you wouldn't normally come across in your browsing. And it just stuck out to me. So I actually I wrote the title down and, and searched it out. Well, I will probably check out check that one out. I've been watching the new season of Baskets. Oh, Which, it's is it streaming or um, it's on Hulu yet? Um, no, it's it's still playing. So I'm watching it on demand on our cable. Ah, gotcha. I mean, you probably can get it on Amazon. Yeah, it's true. I probably rent it on on Amazon or buy an episode. I, I catch up on, on FX things on Hulu, but it, it has to be a whole season and some certain right. amount of time has to go by. Yeah, I mean, it continues to to be funny, and they move in new directions this season great um overcoming their trauma and i'm enjoying it good good i can't wait uh that's one of those shows that's so perfect that i want more of it but i want them to be careful and take their time because i don't want a season of it that kind of goes you know arrested development direction yeah i don't think it's it's quite like that and some of it requires more than one watch i've watched these episodes now a couple times because they're only coming out one a week mm -hmm. and so i there's like four in, so I've watched the four again, and, and I liked them even better the second time. So I, I think it's good. All right. All right, Dan. Well, let's take a little break, and then we'll talk about Do the Right Thing. Welcome back. Uh, I guess this week's movie is my selection. So it falls upon me to introduce said feature. Tis a privilege. Do the Right Thing is a 1988 film by Spike Lee, or is it an 89 film? 89. A film by Spike Lee, starring Lee, Rosie Perez, introducing Rosie Perez, Ossie Davis, Danny Aiello, Ruby D, John Turturro, Bill Nunn, Giancarlo Esposito, 
many, many others, Samuel L. Jackson. It uh, takes place over a couple of sweltering hot days in Brooklyn and Bed-Stuy and follows several cliques of characters as they go around their business and scrape up against each other as tensions flare in the summer heat. Um, I It's been a couple weeks now since I saw it. I saw it in a theater, which was a very exciting experience. The audience was was pumped about it. Spike Lee plays Mookie, uh, who works at Sal's famous pizza in Bed-Stuy and acts as a sort of ambassador uh, between the Italian characters in the in the restaurant and the neighborhood kids and between different factions of the neighborhood peoples. There's uh, Danny Aiello is Sal. He owns the pizza joint and is largely, at least seemingly benevolent and friendly to the neighborhood kids. He has two sons, Vito and Pino, Richard Edson and John Turturro. There are several factions of people in the neighborhood, the teens running around, having fun, being loud, playing in the fire hydrants. Uh, There's bugging out Giancarlo Esposito's character, who is something of an activist. There's Radio Rahim, who is uh, Bill Nunn, and his boombox. There's the old drunk that they call the mayor, Ossie Davis stumbles around dispensing advice that is occasionally warranted and perhaps even heated. There's mother sister, Ruby D the old matron of the neighborhood and um, the three old retired men who sit around complaining. There are the cops, the Korean shop family and uh, many, many others. Uh, And it's about this snapshot of this neighborhood and things get pretty crazy and Dan, I want to talk about this movie in more detail, but first, can you tell me uh, anything about your own history with Do the Right Thing? I had no history with it. This is a movie that for some reason I never saw, but I knew it was wildly respected. I knew Roger Ebert thought so much of this movie, and it was one that I just never sat down with before. I, I really loved this movie. I loved watching it, and I was just astonished at its cultural impact to see it on this side of history, to realize how much of nineties entertainment was shaped by this film. When I think of everything that say nineties Nickelodeon was trying to be, it was trying to emulate do the right thing or similar. I I was astonished at Lee's ability to balance all of these characters to introduce them and to use them to great effect and to be on a trajectory toward the final, I mean, I don't want to call it a catharsis, but toward the climax of the story. And you don't quite see that coming, but once you're there, you've been moving in that direction all along. Because to me, it seemed almost like a slice of life. We're watching this neighborhood. We're getting to know its inhabitants and understanding some of their uh, daily life, as well as their fears, their prejudices, their conflicts. And then all of a sudden, it explodes at the end into this huge uh, street conflict. And I thought, how how difficult that was both to write and shoot in a way that made sense and that an audience could go along with. And it had an enormous amount of um, impact for me. Yeah, I was absolutely blown away by it. Um, I thought it was 
uh, it managed to confront me with things that are difficult to be confronted with. And it managed to be a message movie that was also so colorful and funny and entertaining at the same time. Um, I mistakenly, I had gone around for years thinking that this was his debut film. It's not, it's his third or fourth movie. Uh, but it is early. It's, it's, uh, he started in the eighties. Um, but it's just interesting to me too. And we'll, we'll get deeper into the thematic stuff, I guess. But, um, having just seen black Klansman last year and then this, I'd say that he's evolved and grown and changed as a filmmaker. And yet the fundamentals of what the movies are about are so there's such a trajectory in this guy's career from then to now, uh, some of it tragically more relevant, perhaps, or at least it seems that way to those of us, uh, living right now. But, um, yeah, so I wanted to talk about um, I I want to do this and then get this over with because I don't want to I don't want to analyze this movie in the big picture by comparing it to Crash. But I think it's instructive <laughs> to move. do so just in just in terms of uh the filmmaking and the characterization and the writing and all of that. Because, you know, our big complaint about Crash was that it deals in uh hot button racial uh, ideas, but does so with such superficiality and uh, this cliches and stereotypes and both sides equivocating. And uh, yes, do the right thing is about a bunch of characters uh, converging in some episodes and themes and conflicts that center around race, but it couldn't, in my opinion, be more different in the way that the characters are conceived and written in the way that the story is told, because yes, it's even, I would even call this movie cartoonish and yet the characters are, I don't want to call them real people cause they're not, it's not that kind of movie, but they're there. There's depth. These are characters who have a life beyond what they're doing on the screen right now. They're not just spouting the ideas of the screenwriter. You have all these different factions and all these different characters, and they're up to things in their life that feel authentic. And then when they rub up against each other, they uh, these things boil to the surface. And I guess, Dan, your big criticism, the, the, the way you put it when we talked about Crash, was that it had a complete misunderstanding or at least a disregard for the dynamics of power and history and those kind of things. And it played, it portrayed, you know, racists and, and on all sides as playing on this kind of even playing field. And this is a movie that completely understands those power dynamics through the personal experience of its filmmaker, I would imagine. And the characters live on different planes of, of that power and victimhood and history and all those things. And they play uh, as part of the thematic framework of the movie. Yeah, that's true. I, Crash plays for a white audience. It's for the white gaze to to look at and feel better that, oh, we're just the same as everyone else and we all have our prejudices and if only we could come together and whatever, that's all nonsense. Um, Do the Right Thing is not made for the approval of white eyes. Certainly it begins, you know, with a fight the power is is the song that is pulsing throughout it understands the those power dynamics like you say in ways that i think uh woke white people just started to see really in 2016 or, or leading up to that even though this is old news for artists who've been talking about this for decades um even centuries 
Why don't we talk about the different characters? I think that that's an interesting way to organize. All right. Um, well, all right. Let's talk about Mookie. Mookie is uh, Spike Lee's character. He is, uh, I'd say he's the audience perspective Certainly. character. And uh, he works for Sal, who is Danny Aiello's character, a uh, old Italian gentleman who runs this business. He's very proud of his business and his two sons work for him, uh, as does Mookie. Mookie's their delivery guy. And so he gets, that's a good excuse to get him out into the neighborhood and introduce all the other characters. Um, John Turturro is Pino. He's a kind of brooding, uh, deeply racist uh, guy, one of Sal's sons. And the other one, Vito, is uh, a little more laid back, a little more, uh, at least outwardly, uh, convivial and uh, friendly to Mookie. And Sal himself is, I would say, again, outwardly, he's mostly benevolent as we meet him. He runs the pizza place. We learn uh, through some of his more candid discussions with his son that he has what sounds like a perfectly reasonable and charitable attitude towards this Brooklyn neighborhood. Uh, but then of course uh, we find out that there are some darker things um, beneath the surface uh, with Sal. Yeah. I liked um, Iola's performance a lot. I understand that Lee had wanted De Niro, but it didn't work out. I think this was way better to get a different kind of actor mm -hmm. here. I liked his character. I felt like the pizzeria had a good relationship with the neighborhood when bugging out gets upset and wants to have the boycott everyone is like, what are you talking about this is the pizza i have this is they see this not as an intrusion or an invasion of their neighborhood but he seems to be accepted as uh, an important member of the community and i i don't remember if he ever did anything that was um overtly um mistreating someone by their race i mean until we get closer to the end of course, but throughout the main, the main narrative, yeah. I liked his character. Yeah. There's a few moments I think where he loses his temper and his language starts to, to get a little bit, you know? Uh, yeah. Okay. But yeah, for the most part, he is, I'd say a benevolent character. Like you feel like he's got it under control and he's there to help. And, and uh, yeah, he's got, right. he's not a, he's not a colonizer in the neighborhood. He's not someone who's taken over a neighborhood spot or something. He has a long history there and he, has, has been embraced as a member of this community. Yeah. And it's an interesting thing about the way this movie goes that we're not introduced to a bunch of good guys and a bunch of villains. And then the, the, the plot ensues. We're introduced to people and, and a bunch of power dynamics and a bunch of relationships and a bunch of histories that people have together. And, and then uh, really the climax of the movie, we'll, we have more characters to talk about, but the climax of the movie ends up being that, these characters actually have to decide to inhabit certain roles uh, when the conflict mm -hmm. um, erupts as it does. So um, you mentioned bugging out. I did not recognize Giancarlo Esposito because I, to me, he, he's, yes. he's gustering more than I was bugging shocked. Out, but, I mean, uh, I saw his name in the opening credits, so I was looking for him. Of course, time yeah. has passed. <laughs> and then at the end, when I saw right. who he had been, I was like, what? And I'm looking back furiously. Right. But he comes into Sal's and he makes a big scene about uh, no people of color on the wall. And this is another place where Mookie kind of plays peacemaker and is like, what are you doing? This is my job. You know, why are you making trouble? What did you, I didn't know what I thought of that. I thought that was a good plot device 
because to look at that argument, I can see both sides of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that actually might be um, masterful writing because uh, that really is an issue where, you know, it's Sal's business and it's a pizzeria and it makes sense that he would put what he wants on the wall of his business. On the other hand, he, he claims to embrace the neighborhood that he's in and this is his clientele. So you take care of them and feed them pizza. Why not give them some representation in the, the decor? His resistance to that, to me, is a early foreshadow of where he stands as far yeah. as um, how integrated he really feels in this neighborhood. Because they don't seem to live there, right? They have their business there. Right. Yeah. No, it feels like they're they're going to home to Jersey or something like yeah. that. I think they might even reference that at one point. They also reference uh, Donald Trump, by the way, as a uh, corrupt right. uh, real estate magnate, which is delightful. Again, this movie hits so on the nail in terms of 2019 issues. And then to have a Donald Trump reference, it, it literally, yeah. like, my jaw dropped. Um, all right. We also have uh, Radio Rahim, who is uh, a very large, is he, would you say he's a high school student? I couldn't place that. And he roams the neighborhood with his uh, with his boombox, playing uh, Public Enemy, and he ends up being central to the issues uh, in the climax. Yeah, and yet to see him, he doesn't seem in any way aggressive. No, he's completely amiable and part of the group. He's not separated. He's not an isolationist, but he right. does blast Public Enemy this song about fighting the power that ultimately becomes what Sal can't stand. It becomes the tipping point. Right. And if he was a, yeah, if he was a white girl blasting Debbie Gibson, yeah, you know, on a boom box, it would just be, Oh, there's a kid with the music, but yeah, he doesn't do anything except be who he is. And, and yeah. Who is the, who's the character who walks around trying to sell pictures Smiley. of Martin and Malcolm? Yes. Okay. I'm looking for him on the cast list. Um, is he Roger Benjamin? Um, no, Roger that's... something Smith. Maybe an element in the movie that would be considered problematic today. I went back and forth about that in my head because to me that was a bold move. And if this were an Adam Sandler movie, then yeah, completely out of place. But he's honored right. by the screenplay to me. He's not presented as a yeah. joke. He's a member of the community. Everybody sort of gets what he's about trying to sell these pictures. Sometimes they humor right. him. Sometimes they get annoyed and say, get out of here. I'm, I'm tired of you. And I, I thought it was, it's a bold character to have, and I wouldn't take him out if this were to be, you know, yeah. remade or rethought. And he almost functions as a, a Greek yeah. chorus or a conscience character because he's, he's literally just walking up and stating the theme of the movie kind of asking people to, you know, engage uh, with something that they can't avoid. Ultimately. Yeah, we've got, from the beginning, the tension between Martin Luther King's, the King Jr.'s posture and um, Malcolm X's posture regarding how change can happen. And he's even got photographs, which became the flashpoint of the conflict. Why can't we have photographs hmm. up on the wall? So he's carrying photographs that could be up on the wall, but they're rejected most of the time. And we've got Martin Luther King Jr.'s um, nonviolent resistance 
and um, Malcolm X calling for more action that um, King probably wouldn't have said was a good idea. And this movie really exists uh, in the tension between those views, not that it has to decide to embrace one or reject the other. It kind of feels like it's, conf- you know, it's, it's saying this is it. This is, this is our life. This is our aspiration and this is our reality. Uh, and also fascinating that that's essentially the same tension at the heart of Black Klansmen. Yeah, that's true. So so many years later, although I guess uh, I did see some voices more critical of that movie uh, for kind of fostering the idea of good police in in Black Klansmen, which is not something in this movie. The the police kind of represent one thing in in Do the Right Thing. You know, I didn't. I mean, I'm sure. If he was, I'm sure he was criticized for that, for Black Klansman, though I don't see him doing that. He's telling a story of something that happened. And I feel that the um, woman who played his um, love interest, the activist, she was intensely critical of, of his profession. I don't yeah. think that in any way he was being held up as a hero, as a police officer. Yeah. I, I'm actually blanking on the plot details of he ends the movie still a cop, yeah. right? And she, so, so I guess that, that notion that it's possible to continue working with the cops towards something constructive was what some people found. Yeah. And I mean, offensive. that is what his, that's why he's not in a relationship with that woman at the end, because she just can't do that. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, well, anyway, uh, well, we've got the business with, uh, mother, sister and the mayor They're married in real life. I just read. To me, they were almost mythical archetypes, almost ancestors who watch and advise and always have eyes on what's going on right now, along with the wisdom of the way things have always been, is kind of how I read them, because Mm -hmm. they weren't um, important parts of the narrative as far as moving the plot forward in in any sort of a way but they did interact with the other people and mother sister at the climax. She seemed at one point to be encouraging the destruction and then another point grieving it within the same scene. And I was confused by that. And then when I was thinking back to the tension between king and malcolm x i wondered if she was representing both of those viewpoints at different moments Mm -hmm. and you have to imagine that she has witnessed scenes just like this. oh yes perhaps many times before and so she kind of knows she's like an old person who's wise who knows what has to happen and still grieves it when it happens yeah yeah i think it was interesting to me the it seemed like Mookie putting that trash trash can through the window deflected um, violence or potential violence from Sal toward the destruction of property. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a lot of equating human life with property when it comes to these demonstrations or these things that just um, happen in the wake of police brutality and a murder like what took place in this movie. Um, of saying, well, isn't that just as bad? Well, no, it isn't the same mm-hmm. to trash a restaurant as it was to kill a person on the street without a trial. Those two things right. aren't the same. And when we talk of violence, meaning the destruction of property, that's not violence. 
that's destruction of property. I, I, I see violence as um, brutal treatment or even killing of a person. And those, those two things aren't the same. And it seemed like after the police left Sal and his sons unprotected when they went away with um, Rahim's body, that was a moment that the crowd could have either turned on Sal or turned on the restaurant, which is what they ended up doing. And was that and was that the right thing, I suppose? Right, right. Well, yeah, so I guess let's dig into that ending. And, you know, obviously it is Sal who first, you know, picks up that bat. Yeah. And he, uh, he it, again, he he's the first one to destroy property. So he could have made a different decision there. And then I tried to just think in my mind afterwards, like what it what was doing the right thing, and it's, I guess it's throwing that trash can. Mookie's throwing the trash can through the window and redirecting the uh, the crowd's uh, ire in that direction, or is it taking a stand when he had been this kind of you know character who was happy to kind of play all sides? I could see that as being either of those things, or I could see it as being a bit more of a of a riddle, even where we're looking at the um, civil disobedience, nonviolent protest of King or um, taking action, destroying property to get people to look up and notice you and to take you seriously um, in the wake of people's lives being taken. You know, this isn't just, I'm going to wreck your store because I want my way. You've killed somebody. And I'm not looking for life for life, but why do you feel entitled to keep your life as normal when you've completely completely taken someone else's and obliterated a community? And so when you look at both of those viewpoints and then you say, okay, friends, do the right thing. <laughs> and, yeah, you know, I, I would not question what Mookie did at all, nor would I say that, oh, we, what he did was the right thing. You never, you right. never know until you're in a moment that I will never probably be in. Right. And it is simultaneously, it's risky and dangerous and ill-advised, uh, you know, and it's also not smart because it's uh, completely obliterating his source of income and his position, but it's also kind of selfless because he's ridding the neighborhood. I mean, I guess not because they talk about insurance money and rebuilding, but I, I don't know. Will Sal continue to try and have a business in that neighborhood after this happened? I can't see how he would. Yeah, I don't know. There's, it's interesting with the Korean store across the way and the crowd turns on them, but then they say, no, we're like you. And though they're not exactly like them, because it's a different history with uh, Korean immigrants yeah. as opposed to black people who are brought here to be enslaved. That's obviously a huge difference. They are um, not white. And Sal holding up this Italian-American heritage, Italians have been integrated into whiteness and have been welcomed yep. into that fold. And he is not one of the other two groups anymore. And he sought to assert his dominance when really we had some young people from a neighborhood who were upset about pictures on the wall of a pizzeria that you would destroy their property in a dramatic way um, in a racist attack, which led to the police coming and one of the people who came in being murdered, there, there, was, there was a reckoning to be had there yeah. with, with that sort of an action. And then 
the crowd probably would have turned on Sal and his sons for revenge. Instead, they destroyed the restaurant. Yeah, and it is my utter naivete as a white dude um, that I know even back in 1988 and decades prior to 1988, having the police simply show up as an instrument of oppression and destruction, I think I probably did a little bit of tisk-tisk to that back when I first saw this movie because that's unfair and whatever. And now, of course, in 2019, it's not just that, oh, I'm, uh, I'm woke now. It's that, you know, look around. Like, the police show up, and Sal, who has initiated an assault, is, you know, he's the adult and the business owner, and, and it's not even a question of whether he will answer for anything that he's done. And it's Rahim, who is a kid with his music, who is murdered. And I don't find that far-fetched. Sadly, I wish I did. I um, don't find myself wishing that they'd given the police more dimension because I don't think that's how this story works. Um, So I found that just uh, upsettingly powerful. Yeah, this was a reality that has been known for generations. And I'm just taught, oh, the police are here to help you. And they they just work out the law and everybody's listened to. And if you didn't want the police not to kill you in the street, you probably just should have listened to them. And that's all just nonsense um, yeah. framing and propaganda. And people see truth um, who live in those communities. Um, someone like Spike Lee sees this truth and made a very effective film depicting it. And that he did so, you know, when he was quite young and at the beginning of a career and that he stated it so uh, uncompromisingly Mm -hmm. and that now it's 30 years later and he still has to, he can still name these names and he can be just as specific and and uncompromising about it in 2019. I just imagine what a, uh, what must that feel like? You know, it's not like mm. so many things we think it's 2019 where we can say things now that we couldn't say before. He's been saying this for so long. Well, I mean, it's a big thing that we're up against. The, I mean, I think of the ending of Black Klansman, how, you know, Heather Hires was killed during that demonstration. The people who are against um, the dismantling of racism and white supremacy, they will kill to keep it. And yet everyone on the other side is just like, well, let's just all be really nice. And yeah. no, we there's a real enemy here that was the air we breathed for hundreds of years. And obviously we don't, it that can't overturn overnight within any sort of uh, society that isn't completely dismantled. Um, but it's it's quite an enemy. And it is an enemy that needs to be fought and just laying down before it. I'm not sure if that will be effective the same way as it seems like Spike Lee is pretty sure it won't be. Um, Well, I think that's um, about what I've got. Uh, This movie, I really enjoyed it and it it pumped me up and made me feel good. And then it made me feel kind of devastated. I think Lee is an essential voice as a filmmaker. This makes me want to watch all of his movies and I'll be chronologically catching up with them. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I I mean it seems silly to give to get to the point where we give it a score. Does it hold up? I think this is Obviously. a brilliant movie that holds up, is relevant, um, and it's tragic how relevant it is. But I felt 
weirdly, I felt sad, but also somehow comforted that this movie exists and that I could catch up with it, uh, even a slightly different person than I was the first time. Yeah. I mean, it could be made today. I, I liked the ending a lot. I sort of thought it was going to be over with, um, the destruction of the pizza place. And then we're just kind of back to regular life. Well, the next day, um, Mookie has that kind of tenuous interaction with Sal. We don't really get any conclusion with it. And then it's just the next day in this neighborhood that we've been watching for the last two hours or so, because this will happen again, the same way as what, as the days that we've just watched happened. And then with the two quotes and the dedication to the victims of police brutality, his stuff is powerful and it's um, pertinent. He doesn't need my approval, but but I uh, I, I sure enjoyed um, being able to be a fly on the wall for it. Yeah, and I guess since we're pretty we're pretty meta and pretty frank about the process of of doing this podcast, we've both been saying all along that we want to intentionally reach and make space for different kind of movies, so it's not just all the the biggest white guy movies of 2001. Um, but at the same time, when we actually end up embracing a movie like this and taking a look at it, I feel completely unqualified to talk about it. Nobody needs to know my opinion oh, of sure. how do the right thing holds up, but I like the experience, Dan, of talking about it with you. And uh, I'm just happy that film exists. And this sounds really cheesy, but I'm happy that movies exist because then uh, it, it gives a voice uh, you know, it's a privilege to me to be able to watch a movie like this and it's not for me. I think it has things that it would say to me, but it certainly wasn't made for the purpose of saying them to me, but I get to hear them. And uh, I don't know. It made me just feel that I guess that that small comfort we have in the uh, perseverance of, of art as a way for voices to be heard. Yeah. And movies are weird that way. Because the Hollywood system is entirely racist and entirely sexist and homophobic, where at, not like the literary world is so wonderful, but there are writers who can write a novel, manage to get it published, and then it's out there. And if it's wonderful, then its community can hold on to its copies and make that part of their libraries. And even if a lot of people outside of that community aren't aware of that author or unaware of that novel, it's always there and it's available. Whereas in filmmaking, there's so much more money that goes into it and so much more at stake that it's more difficult for a lot of um, voices to get it out there and to be held up by the filmmaking community such that anyone hears about it or knows that um, the movie even exists to be seen. Um, I think, you know, Kim Basinger made people so angry with her at the Oscars that year when she gave a shout out to do the right thing, which um, was not shut out of the Oscars at um, ILO. I mean, somewhat ironically, the white guy, of course, uh, nominated and then leave for his screenplay. Um, But it was not a Best Picture nominee, though it was seen as being one of the best pictures critically um, of the year. I think it certainly should have been in that lineup. And she just said you know uh these films i'll tell the truth that's why they're great and the there's a film missing that maybe tells the most truth that's do the right thing and got a lot of applause and some booze <laughs> this was when she was out to um oh, to, 
to, to introduce the Dead Poets Society <laughs> of all, of all <laughs> okay. moments, so I can understand what the anyway. Here's, anyway, here's this: the whitest movie, the whitest movie of them all. Um, yeah. But it's so. My point is, it's so hard to break in in Hollywood if you want any sort of mainstream distribution or people seeing your film outside of your immediate community of experience, um, different than other art forms. So I wish that this film, I mean, it, it did get notoriety and it did get acclaim. I can't say that it didn't, but you know, here it is 2019 before I saw it, you know, <laughs> and, and I am not the t- target audience, you know, Spike Lee sure doesn't care if I see his movie, but yeah, it, it's just a different thing. Yeah. And it took him 30 years to get that Oscar. Right. We're still throwing bones here so much, uh, uh, also, a the Criterion Collection, they really do the right thing years ago on DVD, but the Blu-ray edition comes out next week, the 23rd of July, oh, nice. 29. And uh, it will still be the Barnes & Noble 50% Criterion sale. So You're big into that. All right, Dan, thanks for uh, another great convo. Thanks for listening, everybody. We've been Dan and Josh. You can follow us both on Twitter and Letterboxd. The show is at HoldsUpPod on Twitter. Our music is by Jonah Rapino, and we will be with you again next week. I always just feel so unprepared, and it's always such a jolt. Like, even if I have time to be quiet for a few moments before we start, or if I've been crazily editing my new video, I just always feel like I don't know what's going on, but... That's I feel okay. that way too. I used to care though, and now I don't as much. Yeah, I'm not nervous about the conversation anymore. Like I, I was the first several times. I feel like I do feel like we're finding a voice, and the show is what it is, and so I'm I'm pleased with that. I just never know how to make the transition from normal, like the rest of Monday, to this moment. I don't know how to do it. I don't know if we need a centering moment. Yeah, or a word of prayer. Right. Or a sip of dry beverage. Sip of dry. This is cucumber this week. I don't know if I told you that. No, I don't think you mentioned that. Cucumber. All right.